director, Tenzo, and librarian. She currently leads a Dharma group, study group, and has taught Dharma in prisons and libraries, which she intends to rekindle. She worked for many years at the San Francisco Public Library, where she was program manager of the James C. Hormel LGBT Center and established a weekly period of Zazen for patrons and staff. She lives with her wife, Nancy, and their cat, Bella, in Oakland. Please welcome Karen Sunheim. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for the introduction and the invitation. And I'd like to welcome everyone today. I see that there are a lot of faces that I don't know. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. What I'd like to talk about today is seeing. How we see things, perceive things, understand things. And today is July 1st, and I've been thinking about how rich the month of June was. There was a lot that um, happened that brings me to this subject. One was that we finished our practice period and our Shuso, Sue Osher, um, spoke of a koan, the main gate and the kitchen pantry. And one of the key phrases in that koan is, everybody has a light. So we all have a light. Do we see it in ourselves? Do we see it in others? The other, the second June theme is LGBTQ pride. Um, I managed a lot of archives at the library, so I interacted with a lot of people who go way back in the early days of gay pride, a lot of the founders. And it started out a bit as a protest because there was, you know, employment discrimination, all sorts of things happened. Um, 
So it began, and I think the first Gay Pride March was in Philadelphia, where I grew up. And I think it was in either late 60s, something like that. And then it came out here to San Francisco. It was a very small uh, march in Golden Gate Park, not what it is today. But after, in addition to the protest, it was also a chance for people to be visible. And that is a really important thing. Um, there were all sorts of contingents marching. I mean, I was with the library marching with a bookmobile, holding up signs that uh, illustrated banned books. And we passed out fortune cookies with the fortune in the middle, was queerest library ever. <laughs> but as an, as an archivist, which I wasn't technically, I was kind of collecting archives, but it was documentation of people's lives and the diversity of them. I mean, the LGBT community is vast and uh, includes every imaginable skin color, culture, class, whatever it is. So it's a bit painful to me this year because there has been such a backlash recently, particularly towards trans people, but towards all of us. And I don't need to list political events because that's not what I'm here to do, but I'm sure you know about them. Um, so that's an aspect of being seen, which is really important. And the third thing is that here at Berkeley Sun Center, we completed our year-long program called many communities, one sangha. And about 33 of us participated. And it's very sangha focused. And it was led by Dr. Rhonda McGee, who's an attorney and an author. And she wrote a book called The Inner Work of Racial Justice. And it's a lot about mindfulness and our perceptions about race. So, um, but, and it's very Sangha focused. So what she often referred to in her talks is uh, we need to widen our lens when we see, when we see who we're with and who we're talking to and be aware of um, ideas that may cloud our perceptions and our vision. And this is a really, this is a very old idea in Buddhism. Back uh, in the Buddha's time, one of his earliest teachings, as many of you know, is first ever Dharma talk was the Four Noble Truths. Now I see some new P 
people. Do people know what I'm talking about when I say the Four Noble Truths? Does any, would you like me to? You're okay. Okay, but it's, it's the truth of suffering. Because the Buddha once said that I teach one thing and one thing only, and that is the cause and the end of suffering. So uh, the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path. So you've heard of this, I'm sure, right mindfulness, right speech, right livelihood. They cover all aspects of our lives, morality, um, what are they? Understanding. Anyway, there are eight of them, and the eighth one is called right view. It's the first. Well, oh, it's the first. Thank you. It depends on your point of view. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, Hosan is the founder of an organization called the Clear View Project. So, um, okay. Well, it's, it's good for me to be reminded that it's the first because in a lot of ways it's the way I enter practice. So right view, just to be, just to list a few aspects of it, it's a deep understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And also having the faith and confidence that we can transform our suffering. It's the ability to know wholesome from unwholesome. So what's a wholesome action? What's a wholesome thought? What's a wholesome desire? And what's unwholesome? So it's important to be able to distinguish those things. And then to water, to nourish those seeds that are wholesome. And we practice mindfulness so that we can identify the seeds, wholesome and unwholesome. So all this connects together. All the aspects of an eightfold path really are uh, legs of one limb or limbs of one body. So here, when we practice mindfulness, which is really what we're doing in Zazen, we have the opportunity to see what arises in us. What kind of thoughts are we having? What kind of feelings? Are they angry? Or happy? Or joyful? What kind of stories are we telling ourselves? One thing the Buddha said is, where there is perception, there is deception. So, things come into our senses, and we can perceive them in many different ways. For example, We can be walking along 
and believe that there is a snake crossing the pathway. Maybe be frightened of that. And then get a little closer and realize it's a rope. That's one example of false perception. And then there is the perception of things, Suzuki Roshi used to say, things as they is, or things without the filter of our minds. Or, excuse me, what I mean to say is, without the arising of our ego self, full of desires and opinions, Because in order to perceive, there has to be something to perceive, right? You look at a flower, for example, and one might think, I see a flower. But it's really your mind. I remember once asking Sojin Roshi, what is mind? And he said, look at a plant. And that was the end of the conversation. It took me actually a few years to understand what he really meant. That I was seeing through my own perceptions. So Buddhist, other Buddhist teachers arose. So there was a teacher, Nagarjuna, who taught either in the first or second century. And um, he is known as possibly the most important teacher since Shakyamuni Buddha, who was probably five centuries earlier, five or six. And uh, Nagarjuna, Nagarjuna went on to say that nothing, that everything and nothing is without essence. So those of you who practice with us regularly and chant the Heart Sutra know that this sutra is really stating that all things that we perceive and think are empty of inherent existence. So he has, uh, he wrote a famous set of verses that's basically called the middle way verses. And um, he has an argument. He takes on the human life and argues in each chapter 
that these things cannot possibly have inherent existence. For example, uh, some of the early chapters address senses like sights and sounds and others um, emotions, feelings, movement. Then he goes on to negate even the Four Noble Truths and Buddha. And then later on, a few centuries later, a teacher named Vasubandhu, who was a, he was both like Nagarjuna, a practitioner and a scholar, said that we are all What we hear and what we see is all through the lens of our conditioning. So after the MCOS program concluded, you know, I've thought a lot about what's going on with um, racism and homo-transphobia in the U.S. and how uh, misperceived it is. People claiming their children are endangered by drag queens reading stories in libraries. You know, I was working in the library where I believe the first drag queen story hour happened. Now, I can't verify that, but there was an author you may, hear, may have heard of, Michelle T. And uh, she used to live in San Francisco. And she did a monthly program at the Harvey Milk branch where I was the manager. So she... Um, she started, I think, Drag Queen Story Hour, and it was really popular. I mean, the kids loved it, and then it spread all over the country. They actually talked about it in the New York Times and mentioned her name. So I'm sorry if it isn't accurate, but children obviously are not going to have a problem with drag queens. You know, it's adults that have the problem. I mean, let's face it. I did want to say a few things about perception because a few personal things. What time is it? Does anyone know? 10.30. Okay. When I was working at Berkeley Public Library, which was long ago, this was the late 80s, we had one of those diversity programs, you know, for the whole staff. And um, at the time, most of the professional staff were white. 
and, mo and a lot of the paraprofessional staff were not. A lot of African Americans and other, you know, colors of skin. And um, we were put in a group. And so I was in this mixed group. And the, the leader of the day-long program, who I thought was very creative, had us sit together. So we were, I was in a group of about eight people. And we were given the instruction, tell the group something about your cultural background. Tell them something you think they ought to know, or you, something you would like them to know. And I come from a very kind of Jewish-European community in Philadelphia, and that was pretty much who I knew when I grew up. So I said something, you know, I wanted people to know that not all Jews were rich. There's a stereotype about that. And then this woman, an African-American woman who I knew, I saw her every day, although we never really talked very much, she said, well, I want you all to know how many young African-American men are trying so hard to succeed in school and get to college and get jobs. It was something about the way she said it or, you know, that opened my perception because, partly because it was so personal, it was not something that you read in an editorial and then feel like all of a sudden you've woken, woken up. It's really these personal uh, personal interactions. Another thing that happened to me was when I came out and I was in my first relationship with a woman, I decided I was never going to tell my mother. Because why? I didn't want to torture myself. It wouldn't benefit her to know. She was 3,000 miles away. I just uh, thought it wasn't necessary. And they came out to visit a lot. And um, so I brought my girlfriend, Elaine, because my parents always wanted to meet my friend. So I thought, they're never going to figure this out. So actually, she called me up after I came, um, after she flew back home, she called me up and asked me, if I was a lesbian, and it wasn't that, that Elaine, and um, I said yes. 
And she said, ugh, that is so disgusting. Don't tell your father, it'll kill him. So I thought, okay, I won't tell my father. What difference does it make? Well, I went back to Philadelphia a few years later to visit, and I, I go out to lunch with him. He wants to go out alone. So we're having lunch, and you know, we finish up, and you know, he's paying the bill, and then he says to me, by the way, Karen, I know all about your relationship with Elaine, and it's perfectly fine with me. Now I have to say this is, we're talking early 80s, so. Anyway, that, that, that had such an effect on me, not just that it was fine, that it was, but it was important for him to tell me that and make a point of it. And speaking of my mother, I had a very difficult relationship with my mother. She was a screamer. And I thought, I used to, I would describe her as a rageaholic. And um, it seemed to me she was screaming day, day and night, and I was terrified. And she was very judgmental, um, really would speak a lot, particularly about LGBT people who she couldn't, she couldn't stand. Um, and, but she, but she kept wanting to visit me anyway and talk on the phone and clearly she wasn't, cutting the ties, she just wanted me to know how much she didn't approve. And um, I felt a lot of shame that I could not figure out the exact source or the nature of. It was just kind of a thing that I had. And um, I felt criticized a lot. Uh, but then, when I was in my early 40s, somehow I realized that my mother was terrified. Rather than being powerful, which is what I actually perceived her to be powerful. I mean, she had the power to really practically ruin my life, so she's powerful. But then, I realized that all this screaming and yelling and raging, it was really out of fear. And that she was actually powerless, that's what she was upset about. This sense of being powerless. And then, as a complete accident, I forgave my mother. We talk about forgiveness, it's very important, and Sojin once gave a talk about the importance of forgiveness. 
But sometimes it's hard to do it intentionally. You might say, I'm going to forgive this person, but still, you know, you're holding on and holding on and have an internal battle with, but you do this all the time, and, you know, you haven't said you're sorry, and, you know, everything. But when I realized her suffering, I couldn't help but forgive her. So I wanted to go on to another of our important teachers, Dogen, who lived in Japan in uh, the 13th century. And I want to read my favorite verse, which I know I've read before. Um, our tradition here at Berkeley Zen Center comes through Dogen. Wouldn't you agree with that, Hozan? Yes. This is Zen Master Dogen. He wrote many fascicles expounding his understanding of the Buddha Dharma, which we read and include in our study. Um, one of my favorite writings of his is called the Genjo Koan, and it's called, it translates to, I think, actualizing the fundamental point, or I like to use the word manifesting, but at least in this book, Moon and a Dewdrop, translated by, or edited by Kaz Tanahashi and translated by many people, um, that's, that's the translation. But I think this verse is so much to me about perception and how we can practice mindfulness and really investigate ourselves and what manifests as self. So I'm going to read it. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. So we come here to practice the Buddha way. And the first entry, usually we begin with Zazen. I know a bunch of you came today and received Zazen instruction from Jerry. So we study the self. 
we sit down on the cushion and what happens? We see ourselves, whether we like it or not. I remember when I first started, I thought sitting on the cushion meant that the mind went blank and you were all peaceful. And that's what meditation was. But it took me about one second to realize that wasn't the case. So one sits down on the cushion or the chair to practice Zazen, and one confronts oneself. That could be in many forms. Could be in the form of physical discomfort, a mind that just thinks constantly, going round and round and round, which is something I'm familiar with. It can be some emotion that just goes, keeps following one around, grief, fear. So we study the self, though. So what does study mean? It means looking, seeing. So when we sit down, one might be consumed by anger, for example, in that moment. So what does one do? We study or investigate. Now this is not analytical. We're not talking about uh, therapizing ourselves or trying to figure out where everything came from. It's looking at the nature of the feeling. So, as most of you realize, feelings and sensations and thoughts are impermanent. So ten minutes may go by and you forgot you were angry, you're on to something else. It's important to really understanding permanence. In fact, Dogen said that that's the number one understanding in his one of his first books, Instructions to the Monks. He said you can't study the Buddha way without understanding impermanence. And that's something we see and experience all the time. Slowly, as we sit with ourselves and investigate without judgment, it's very important not to beat yourself up or try and make something happen. Just be with whatever is arising and let it be there and look at it. One can see the nature of the self. 
So then he goes on to say, to study the self is to forget the self. Because that kind of ego self that's complaining, perhaps, longing, hungry, starts to get smaller and smaller. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. So from my observation, as the self is smaller and not interfering with every encounter and um, interaction, the myriad things, meaning everything that we perceive, hear, smell, come forth. And we can see them more clearly. What time is it now, please? I don't want to go on forever. Okay, I think I'm going to stop. Um, I think what Dobin has to say is so important because as we sit, we drop our conditioning. We drop our thoughts, which really illustrate our conditioning, our emotional habits. We have some time for responses or questions. Hosanna, I just would like to ask you if you'd like to comment. Well, thank you. I uh, I really appreciated the personal sections of the talk. Mm-hmm. Can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Um, can you hear me out there in Zoomland? Can you? Yes, I can hear okay. you. Um, I think that part of what I understood the MCOS program and our kind of larger responsibility is um, in order to see the people around us or the world around us, uh, we have to be able to see our conditioning. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's hard. And I'm wondering if you have instruction as to how can, we, how can we zero in on our conditioning? Well, it's important to see what arises in one's own mind when we're in particular situations. Um, I think it's really important to talk to people, which is one of the beauty beauties of the MCOS program, was talking to people and hearing, you know, What happened to you? What was your life like? A lot of us, you know, I said that I grew up in kind of a particular community. I wasn't really exposed to other people until I was older.
I think that uh, one of the successes of MCOS was people felt more comfortable talking. Do you agree you were in it? I do. I, you know, and I, our practice often is just sitting here silently. And we learn things about each other in a very uh, nitty-gritty physical way, which is also, which is also important. Uh, but there are surprising, infinite surprising aspects of everyone's life that we have to be in a position where we can hear them mm -hmm. and where they feel free to see, to see them. And I would just, to give a plug, we're about to, we're going to enter a second round of MCOS, so there's room to uh, participate in it, right? Yes, we will do MCOS again, starting in the fall, for nine months with Professor Rhonda McGee. And um, I hope you will consider joining us for that. But I think, I really think like you're saying that no, you have to know people, you know, you have to get to know them and to talk to them. Sue and then Colleen. Yanni will pass around the mic for everybody. Okay. And if you're on Zoom and if you would like to say something, please raise your digital hand and I will check back. Thank you, Karen, for your talk. Um, I kept thinking about what was coming up in the moment that was so uncomfortable for me to face and sometimes sitting <coughs> Sasen, that's an opportunity. Those delusions are also Dharma gates. And I felt so tired, I felt like weeping. And I thought, well, Karen said we can examine it. And I started to do that and breathe into it. And I just feel like weeping, and that's okay. What I would really ask of you is to read the Gencho Koan again, please. Thank you. I'm going to read that, and I'm also going to read something I forgot that I also want to read. This is just a verse from the Genjo Koan. To study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. And I did want to read one other verse. This is from Nagarjuna's Middle Way Verses. This is a verse about views. And this relates to emptiness, because some people confuse emptiness with either non-existence, non for example. The victorious ones have said that emptiness is the relinquishing of all views, 
For whomever emptiness is of you, that one has accomplished nothing. So you have to be careful when people toot a horn about things being empty. I hate to say it, but that Supreme Court decision about affirmative action reminds me of that. Colleen. Oh. Go ahead, Colleen. Colleen and then Margo. Thanks, Karen. Um, that was just so moving, that story about your mother and your father. I don't think I'd ever heard that about your father. It really, really moved me. And I guess I'm curious. I mean, I know enough about your ongoing relationship with your mother to know that it wasn't all peaches and cream, you know, after that. Um, but can you speak a little bit about what your seeing of her fear invited her to do, or what it's, you know, what, what effect did it have on her? Did it have an effect on her? She just thought we had a great relationship all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> You really, you just gave her such a gift. You gave her such a gift. Well, you know, I think she felt she had to chase me around to force me to relate to her. And it was kind of true. Yeah. You know, she did have to. Then I gave up the resistance. And I, because my mother also was a very intelligent, witty, smart woman. Um, she was engaging in men, on many levels, so there was a lot to appreciate about her. So. Thank you. Margo? Um, Let's see if they can hear you. Can you hear Margo? Wait a second. In Zoom? Okay. Bye. Question is about uh, I think maybe fixed views. It seems that when we're totally caught by the thinking mind, like we're totally embodying that, um, then it's hard to even know that fixed views exist because it just seems to be the truth about the world mm. and. Even in my experience of sitting zazen and becoming silent, but then we stand up and act in the world, and there's kind of this like implicit thing functioning. I don't know. I think maybe I have some desire to get an answer of how to, uh, like, is it possible to really see that and? Like how do we Is it possible to drop it? your views? Is that or even just recognize the things that we um, hold as true? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think there's something about holding a belief as true. It's hard to even recognize that it's a belief. That's a really good point. I think a lot of a lot of. Oh well. I'll project. 
The uh, oh. um, I think that is what the big problem is in the world. You know, people believe their views and they don't think of them as views. Um, and yes, I think it's very possible to look at ourselves and see what is an actual view. Um, now, one thing, I forget which teacher, if it was Thich Nhat Hanh or somebody who said, ultimately, right view is no view. You've dropped your views. It's really hard to have compassion for others when you have a really strong viewpoint. The woman at Berkeley Public Library who said this thing, which now is so obvious about young African-American men, I have to say that it surprised me, and I don't know why it surprised me, if, but it changed my view, or my understanding. Let's say, let's use the word understanding. But I'm, I encounter my views all the time. Read the news, read the paper, get upset. Um, so, does that address your question at all? You can follow up if you... You think so? Okay. Anybody? on Zoom. Gary. Well, would you say the dropping of views is dropping of body and mind? Or how do you see body and mind in like Dogen's statement? Or, or I, reverse, I, I mean. I see body and mind as all the things that we experience as, as ourself. So maybe an aching leg from, out from sitting zazen or some health condition we're in. Um, mind is all those, like Sue was saying, this emotion of sadness. That's all body and mind. And that's all the self. That's what Dogen means about dropping the self. And it's dropping our conditioning. Hold on. It's all well and good to posit the right view as no view. And that's one side. The other side is where we're called upon to have views mm -hmm. 
and make decisions and make evaluations. How do you, how do you live with that, uh, that, that tension, perhaps? Mm -hmm. When I'm attached to a viewpoint, I tend to have a strong emotion involved. Sometimes anger or self-righteousness, for example. That doesn't get me anywhere in terms of... Um, I have to wait. I have to let go of... my. I have to let my reaction settle down. Now, I, I agree that, I mean, I have viewpoints and you can say that the Buddhist tenets are viewpoints. I mean, it is a struggle, because it's not like anything goes. I mean, this verse from the Garjana on views, is if your view is that things are empty or that there's nothing, then you don't get the point. But if you're seeing, say, young African-American men suffering from really having their their path to actualization blocked, or if you're seeing the astonishing uh, pushback around uh, in, in states and governments around uh, LGBTQ people, you know, that is, uh, seems like it's on fire now. Mm -hmm. um, how do you hold, in, in a way, how do you hold that suffering? Well, I lean on my bodhisattva vow. The bodhisattva vow is to end suffering for all beings. That includes people in prisons, um, just people everywhere who are suffering. Including those who cause suffering? Yes, including those who cause suffering. We have to, we vow to save everyone. And the ones who cause suffering are suffering too. I think it's time to stop. It's time to start. Well, I would just like to we were about to chant the Bodhisattva vows, and I would just want to, to bow and vow to save all beings. 